It's been more than a year since President Donald Trump's Remain in Mexico program has effectively blocked the ability for most people to claim asylum in the U.S. And now, thousands of people wait to hear their cases while living in Mexico. Even though this migration crisis doesn't have the same visual impact of the migrant caravan, thousands of lives remain displaced, hanging on to hope that they can start a new life in the U.S. The current barriers raise the question, how restrictive should an asylum system, which was born out of the failures of the West to save Jews during the Holocaust, be before it becomes a farce? For the San Diego Union-Tribune, I'm Daniel Wheaton, and this is your San Diego News Fix. Kate Morrissey, you're an immigration reporter at the Union Tribune. And the first part of a new series called Returned went online this morning. And it tells a tale of a woman who's, like many people, is searching for asylum in the U.S. Let's step back a little bit. What is this project aiming on doing? So... Uh, it's been a little while now since the project first sort of was a light in someone's eye, right? I was talking with our editor and publisher, Jeff Light, and we were talking about, you know, all the coverage of the two caravans that came here to the San Diego-Tijuana border in 2018 from Central America and how uh, how much attention had been given to that and how much our readers had really seemed all of a sudden to want to understand more about this asylum system. And it was this big national topic that was happening in our own backyard. And so uh, Jeff and I talked and, and sort of realized that we had this responsibility to take a much deeper dive into the system to really understand how it functions, how it was intended to function, what it's, what it's even created to do, um, and then to look at are we actually being successful in that or not and in, in any kind of way and and start to peel back some of those different layers of this very complicated system. So basic question, what is the point of asylum? So asylum as a concept comes into play after the end of World War II. You have countries coming together as now the United Nations and um, doing these sort of side committees where they're talking about what to do with all of the refugees and displaced people from World War II. And so as they're having those conversations, they start to say, okay, well, well, who are we going to count as as this group of people that needs protection and who's not going to count? And out of those conversations, we get what we have today as sort of this idea that if you're going to be eligible for asylum, you have to show that you've been persecuted by either your government or a group that your government cannot or will not control, and that it is because of at least one of five reasons, which is your race, nationality, um, religion, political opinion, or membership in a social group. And so if you're fleeing for your life, but it's not for one of those reasons, asylum, as we understand it today under the law, is not necessarily created for you. But if you are fleeing for one of those reasons, you're in this sort of... How, how the world is sort of thought of, you're in this this group of particularly vulnerable people because it's something so intrinsic to your identity that you're being attacked for. And so as a, as a world, we've sort of collectively said that if these folks show up, 
you're supposed to have a way to process and identify them and say, okay, this person is one, this person is not. And then for the ones who are, they have certain rights and and things that they're able to do in your country. Mm -hmm. And over the past several years, the means in which asylum has been processed in the U.S. has changed drastically. Walk us through those changes. There's been a lot of changes. So um, some of the earliest changes were actually changes to um, case law. So the immigration court is under the executive branch of government, which is something that I think a lot of people don't necessarily realize. And so the attorney general has the power to sort of re-decide cases that have already been decided even at the appeals level. And so he um, he redecided a couple of cases that really tightened some of those definitions and those different reasons that I just talked about. Um, that left out different groups of people who before might have had a better chance of arguing that, no, they actually did count as one of the people who were eligible. Um, But we've really started to see a lot more movement on the asylum front, again, after those caravans came in 2018. Mm -hmm. Um, And the first big one was migrant protection protocols, which we um, often hear referred to as remain in Mexico. And that's where someone um, is sent back to Mexico for all for the duration of their asylum processing. So um, they wait, they come back across for a court hearing, they go back across again, back and forth and back and forth until their case is done. And so we have tens of thousands of people now waiting for asylum hearings in Mexico and they're unable to reach, you know, the oftentimes if somebody chooses to come here, it's because they have you know, a family member or a friend or somebody here who said, yeah, you've been through this thing. Let me help you get on your feet. Come here and we'll figure it out. And so instead of being able to sort of access that person's couch or, you know, whatever sort of living situation they were going to have um, with that person um, where they might also have a better chance of finding an attorney because they'd be inside the country and ostensibly there would be less um, they would have probably better odds of having a little bit of funding either from their friend or if eventually they're allowed to work themselves after they've waited a certain amount of time, um, then there's actually a little bit of money available to maybe pay an attorney. And so what we're seeing is that a lot fewer folks in this program have representation in court, including the woman who I, I wrote about in my story. She doesn't have an attorney. And that's one of the things that's really making her nervous because when the judge talks to her, she has a really hard time understanding some of the legal jargon and Mm -hmm. the different sort of loops and, you know, things that she has to go through in a legal sense in order to do this thing that she's trying to do. Yeah. And reading your coverage and the coverage of other members of the border team in the past several years, honestly, it's really striking to me how, in a sense, migrant protection protocols is equally as different and worthy of attention as family separation was. But I think because we don't have that, you know, dramatic image or something, this massive policy, which totally rewrote everything, didn't get the same kind of attention as that thing that really became a rallying cry. Yeah, it it is interesting how much sort of slower it's been for people to really be paying attention to news about the Remain in Mexico program. I do think that's picked up a little bit, but I think it's also important to say now, sort of at this point in time, 
that there are other policies that have been put in place that have sort of even superseded Remain in Mexico to put up these additional barriers. And so you have uh, the rule that if somebody passed through another country between leaving their country and getting to the U.S., if they didn't apply for asylum in that country first, then they can't apply for asylum in the U.S. And so you have a lot of people who are now being told they're not eligible for asylum because they arrived after the date that policy went into effect, when if they had arrived before, they would have at least been processed for asylum, and now they they can't be. And then on top of that, we have the asylum cooperative agreements with a couple of countries in Central America. It's been implemented first in Guatemala, and so people are actually being told, we're not going to let you apply for asylum here. You're going to go apply for asylum in Guatemala, and they're put on planes and sent to Guatemala. Never mind that a not insignificant portion of asylum seekers coming to the U.S. are themselves from the country of Guatemala. Mm-hmm. So in this story, you chose one woman as the, the focal point. How did you meet her? Without giving away all of my sourcing, um, someone told me that she existed and that she was willing to talk to a journalist and gave me her WhatsApp number. And so I was sort of in the thick of some of the basic background reporting on the asylum system for my project. I wasn't really in a place quite yet to be looking for whose story I was going to tell. I needed to understand a little bit more about the system first. And so I messaged her and said, hey, I'd like to come see you at some point. But I was very sort of vague and noncommittal. And she was like, anytime you come by. And then as I was working through the project and thinking about how am I going to help our readers actually see what this system is in in a, a human way and a real way and an accurate way, I messaged her again and, and went and talked to her about the project as this thing that I was doing that would be, you know, a lot bigger and probably a lot more of a spotlight on her than if I just wrote, you know, a, a weekend story about her, which I think was maybe her initial uh, thought when she said she was willing to talk to a journalist. But mm-hmm. um, she went along with the idea and and we went from there. So I, I've i been going to see her in, in Tijuana to, to check and recheck and recheck and ask the same question six different ways and see if her answer changes and, and everything that you do when you're really trying to fact check as thoroughly as you can what someone has told you about their story. Yeah, and imagine fact-checking a story like this is even more difficult just because of the political unrest. Yes. So we actually traveled to Nicaragua in order to do a lot of the fact-checking, and um, I'm not able to identify most of the people who I spoke to for that because of this very real fear that they have that the government will retaliate against them for talking to foreign press. Um, What everyone down there says when you talk to them is that the government doesn't want more sort of negative press about what it's done. It's trying to really keep this repression that happened to uh, these pro-democracy protest movements in 2018. It's trying to keep all of that from really being in the spotlight on on the international stage And, you know, we do see, like, the U.S. government, for example, is doing certain sanctions against certain individuals in the Nicaraguan government. 
uh, we do see some of that happening. So it's not like they're not getting any attention or pushback even even now, you know, they've been they've been announcing different sanctions on specific individuals. Um, but the the understanding is sort of if you show yourself as an individual of dissent, um, pretty much anything can happen to you. Um, so for listeners that are familiar, what exactly happened in 2018 that caused uh, this woman to flee? It all started with a wildfire. There was a wildfire in this biological reserve and students began protesting what they saw as the government's lack of response to this wildfire. There were environmental concerns. There were also concerns about indigenous land. And so between all of those things, students were, were speaking out. And then while those protests were going on, the government announced cuts to the pension system. So seniors were going to be getting less money. And then the protests really grew. Um, And even on the first day of protests after the pension cuts were announced, um, there were documented acts of violence on behalf of the government. You had these sort of pro-Ortega groups attacking people while the police are standing there, just kind of letting them. Uh, Mm -hmm. There's a lot of video footage of that 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 people can, can search for pretty easily still. Um, there's one video in particular that sticks out in my mind of this sort of older woman who was bleeding profusely from the head after being attacked by, by some of these groups. Um, those groups eventually became known as the paramilitary um, and began acting in a, mu- in a very like coordinated way with the sort of more official government structures like the police. Um, and so by the second day of protests, uh, there were bullets fired and there were casualties and that continued and continued over several months. During the first four months of protests, you had more than 300 people killed, more than 2,000 people injured. Um, those are statistics coming from the United Nations that did a, a big report about what was going on in Nicaragua. Um, it's, you know, when you, when you go down there and, and you talk to people, you get this real sense of this like this communal feeling of betrayal mm-hmm. that the that the government of what the government did to them like there's there's this real hurt that people people still feel but they can't talk about it and you can sort of see when you finally get somebody in a space where they feel like okay I can open up and talk and I know the person that I'm telling is not going to get me in trouble with the government. And just like, and I, I talked about this a little bit in the backstory, um, which, you know, people can check out too. But it's, you know, when you're talking to somebody and they really like feel heard and they haven't felt heard and they don't cry exactly, but their eyes get really wet. Mm-hmm. And I saw that over and over and over again doing interviews down there. And that was just so striking to me. I think that speaks a lot about what people have lived through in that country. And it sounds like everything you described is the exact scenario that would cause someone to try to claim asylum. So, yeah, political opinion is one of the five reasons. If you're being persecuted for your political opinion, it's one of the five reasons you're supposed to be able to say, hey, 
I'd like to to request asylum. And then, you know, we review your individual case and say, okay, well, was it the government that was persecuting you or was it a group that the government can't or won't control? Um, There's definitely room to make that argument about the paramilitary, um, which were the people who attacked the woman in my story. Now that uh, Barbara's waiting to have her case heard, where do things stand and what's next? So at this point, she has submitted her asylum application to the judge. And that's an important moment in a legal sense because that's when you've really actually officially requested asylum. When folks come to the port of entry and say, I'm afraid to go home, I want asylum, they haven't yet actually made that official request. It requires filling out the specific form uh, in order to, to enter that part of the process. And so she's done that. She's submitted some evidence Um, I think she's still working on sending in a little bit more to the judge. Um, And then she waits, and in April she'll go before the judge. Um, Usually they're scheduled as four-hour hearings. Um, They're private, so uh, the public can't come in and listen. And, And the reason for that is that, you know, they want whoever is talking to be able to express fully what happened. And if there's somebody in the audience who might keep that person from feeling safe to say everything they need to be able to say for their case, then that's not good. And so um, these hearings are usually private. And um, she, at this point, does not have an attorney. The government has an attorney from ICE um, that will represent the U.S. government and sort of try to uh, question her, look for holes in her story, gaps in her story, uh, inconsistencies, any ways in which her story might not jive with what our laws are about asylum. Um, and then the judge will also ask questions directly to her and also to the government attorney um, in order to try to understand the situation. And again, um, a lot of times with these stories, because people come with, you know, not a whole lot of documentary evidence. She does have some documents, but a lot of what happened to her is her story. And so the judge will have to decide how credible he thinks she is. And so anytime that she says a detail that doesn't quite line up with another time that she said that detail, um, those kind of things can really hurt somebody. And so it it's uh, important to see how, how consistent she is. And so, you know, going back to my own reporting process, that was something that I was really looking for as I went back to her again and again is, is she, is she consistently telling me the same things or do her details change? Mm-hmm. And had this happened during the Obama administration, do you have a sense that this would have been a much quicker process and she would have attained asylum or what do you think? I don't think it would have been quicker. Um, the immigration court system has been backlogged for years. And so uh, if these protests had happened years earlier, if she had been persecuted years earlier and had come years earlier, the difference would have been that she would have been inside the United States while she was waiting for her case. Mm -hmm. And so that would have given her a little bit better chance at finding an attorney to help her navigate some of this legal jargon and and to help her understand which details are the most important ones to say to the judge 
in order to show how her story lines up with the law. Um, the other thing is that she, so since being returned to Tijuana, she's been robbed twice. Um, she lives in a neighborhood where she feels scared to go out by herself. Mm-hmm. Um, she's seen people get assaulted in her neighborhood. And so, uh, you know, to be living under that kind of pressure still while trying to navigate the legal ins and outs of your case, it's um, it can be a lot. You know, I mean, I think for her, it's it's a lot to to process. And and she's trying really hard to be positive. You can see it in in how she carries herself in the way that she writes these motivational messages to herself on the refrigerator, for example. Um, but I think those are the ways in which it's really putting pressure on her that she wouldn't necessarily have had if she had arrived earlier. Even still, even even years ago, it's it's always been difficult to win asylum. And we've seen throughout the course of, of the system's history that there have been inconsistencies in the way decisions happen. There have been numerous studies about that. Um, when more of the project comes out, we'll be able to dig even deeper into that. We talked about it a little bit in part one, but more of that is coming. Um, and so, you know, we can't say like, oh, yes, she definitely would. You know, we don't know. And part mm-hmm. of that is is the system itself. Mm-hmm. So you kind of hinted at it, but uh, what's the next part of this series that you're planning? So the next part is a much, uh, much more like data heavy part of the series. I've been working with data reporter Lauren Schroeder on, on that. Um, I don't want to give away too much because it's not out yet, but um, we've got a lot of different ways to help people understand uh, what we've looked at with the data that's not just reading a bunch of numbers in a paragraph. And so I am, I am pretty excited for people to get to see uh, that part when it comes out. Mm-hmm. And uh, the story's only been out for not even a day. It went online this morning and in print on Sunday. What's been the reaction? Um, so far, mostly positive. Um, I've gotten a lot of emails from people who, uh, you know, thanking thanking us for the story. Um, people who, uh, you know, I think no matter which side of sort of political things they're on, they uh, they empathize with uh, the woman in the story and and just understand better what happens in the system. And so, yeah, it's, people have been have been pretty, you know, maybe glad isn't the right word because a lot of them have talked about how sad the story made them, but how they were glad to have read it. Mm-hmm. It's one of those things in which you kind of need to have the whole reality explained because it is incredibly complicated and having a story which you can empathize with makes it easier to kind of go through those very complicated steps of understanding the system that most people probably didn't even know existed. Right. Well, I, you know, the story is very honest, too. Like, there's there's a section where we talk about how not everybody who's coming is eligible, you know, but some subset of the folks who are coming may be or likely are. And, you know, so that raises the question from a government accountability perspective 
we have this system that we created with these, you know, these reasons that are, you know, tied to some pretty deep things. And are we doing that? Mm -hmm. And what does it mean for a place that decides to change those rules that were agreed upon? So now that it's online, one thing I'd, I'd really recommend if people get the chance is to also watch the video um, on the project. It's not a simple repetition of the article itself. Um, when we were in Nicaragua, we went to this museum, this temporary museum that had been created inside a private university, which is one of the only places where people who lost their loved ones during the repression of these protests can go and grieve openly. And so we met several mothers whose sons had been killed during the protests. And so the video goes much deeper into their stories and and that side of what's been going on in Nicaragua. Um, Barbara, the woman from Tijuana, is in there too. But I think, you know, for people who are really wanting to get an understanding and a visual of, of what's been going on in this country, the video is a really nice complement to the article itself. Mm-hmm. All right. Kate Morrissey, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the San Diego News Fix, which goes live weekdays at 5 p.m. If you also like your news in your email inbox, we've got you covered. You can sign up for breaking news, top headlines, business, sports, entertainment, watchdog, caregiving, and more. We've also got Boletines en Español, plus emails from Pacific Magazine and a host of community newspapers. Just go to uniontrip.com newsletters. Until next time.